This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Uh, so good evening, everyone, and welcome to the UC San Diego Center for Healthy Aging public lecture event. For those of you I haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Danielle Glorioso, and I'm the executive director of the Stein Institute for Research on Aging and the Center for Healthy Aging. I'm just so delighted to see such a lovely turnout tonight for our talk. We're really excited about it. Uh, for those of you who are new to us, uh, the Center for Healthy Aging focuses on advancing lifelong health and well-being through community outreach, training, and research. I know many of you have been to our lectures before and know that these lecture series have been going on for over 25 years now with the idea that we want to get exciting advances that are happening in the field of aging out to the community. Um, so these lectures have been going on for 25 years now, free to the community, and are sponsored entirely through donations. So I'd like to take a moment to thank all of you for supporting these lectures over the years, because we wouldn't still be here doing this exciting work and connecting the, with the community without your help. Um, I'd also like to note that this uh, lecture tonight is sponsored by Great Call. Great Call is a San Diego company and a leading provider for easy-to-use technology for active aging. They've been wonderful supporters of the work we're doing, and we're very grateful that we can have this talk tonight because of them. Uh, I'd like to go ahead and introduce our speaker tonight. We are so thrilled to have Dr. Katherine Richmond, or Meg Richmond. Uh, she's a radiologist here at UC San Diego, and she's been serving as medical director of radiology at Thornton Hospital since 1999. She completed all of her training here at UCSD, starting from medical school all the way through fellowship. She's a body imager, performing CTs, ultrasounds, and fluoroscopic studies, specializing in procedures to assess women for infertility and gynecological issues. Today, she joins us to discuss the impact of nutrition on our health. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Meg Richmond. Thank you, Danielle, and thank you all for coming this evening. I really appreciate it. So let's talk about what we eat and how it impacts our health. Are you excited? Yes. Great. Okay, I'd like to start with a quiz. Make sure you're all awake and excited about this information. So Dr. Campbell, many of you, I heard you rumbling that you've already read the China study, but as you remember in the book, he's looking at rats with liver cancer. He fed them 20% protein or 5% protein, and what happened to the rats? Then... So, what's going on in Norway during World War II? What is being depicted in this graph? We're going to talk about that. How to have a good time. Eat blank to power your sexual life, even if it seems hard at times. We'll find out what that is. In terms of osteoporosis, we're looking at various countries. The calcium intake here, let me use the other pointer, sorry. So calcium intake on the bottom here and hip fracture rate here. You'll see that these countries here have very high calcium intake but also very high hip fracture rate. These two countries here, very little calcium intake but very low hip fracture rate. What are those countries? G-bombs, Dr. Furman refers to G-bombs. What are they? Why are they important? What is even more disturbing and what virtually no one recognizes is that blank is killing our brains too, physically shriveling them. Two different brains here, which one do you want? <laughs> Let's get started. So we're going to be talking about healthy, nutrient wealthy, and wise. And we're going to start with healthy. And we're going to begin talking about cancer. 
So there are three stages to cancer. So the first is initiation. I hate to say it, but every single one of us in this room is making cancer cells. It's just what we do. So the next stage is promotion. So initiation is kind of like you have seeds. You make seeds. And then the promotion phase is where do you put those seeds? Do you throw them on a carpeted floor like here so they can't grow? Or do you put them on soil and give them miracle grow? Do you allow that cancer to grow? And then the third stage is progression, where the cancer just grows like wildfire. Dr. Campbell here wrote the book, The China Study, Cornell uh, Nutritional uh, Biochemist. How did he get involved with all this? It started in the 1960s. He was looking at malnutrition in the Philippines. He was involved with something called the Mothercraft Project. The whole point of the project was to cure malnutrition. And how were they going to do that? They were going to increase protein. When he got to the Philippines, he was shocked. Hepatitis B is endemic there. But the poor, he found no liver cancer. Yet in the rich, even in kids as young as four years of age, they were getting liver cancer. Four years of age getting liver cancer. How is that possible? Well, he noted that the rich were the only ones who could afford the animal protein. Now, this didn't make sense to him because then liver cancer was previously thought to be a protein deficiency problem. In fact, that was the whole point of the Mothercraft project was to cure malnutrition by increasing protein consumption. So how could protein consumption be related to cancer? He knew that aflatoxin, which is the most powerful carcinogen, was very high in the Philippines, and he thought maybe that's why. He also had heard of this obscure study in India. So that rats with liver cancer, some were fed 20% protein levels, others 5% protein levels. And what happened? They also gave them aflatoxin, that carcinogen, these rats got liver cancer, all the white dots you see. These rats did not. No liver cancer. One of Dr. Campbell's colleagues said, oh, they must have mislabeled the cages. Because then, yeah, then as now, everyone believes protein, protein, protein. So Dr. Campbell started thinking about what is the role of protein in tumor genesis, meaning the growth of cancer. The rat study in India, cancer only developed in those with high protein intake. The Mothercraft project, only those with diets higher in protein got cancer. How could this be? So he started doing some investigations in his lab. He started studying what happened as he brought protein levels down to 5%. You have to understand that aflatoxin by itself is not dangerous. It becomes dangerous when acted on by this mixed function oxidase, MFO, makes aflatoxin the dangerous metabolite. And what Dr. Campbell found was as he lowered protein, he found lower levels of MFO. And did this matter? Yes. Lower protein levels meant fewer mutations of the DNA. What else did he find happened as he lowered the protein levels? Less aflatoxin entered the cells. The cells multiplied more slowly. The MFO, that enzyme, the ability decreased and the amount decreased. And all of this collectively led to fewer DNA mutations. So then Dr. Campbell started to do another study. He looked at actual cancer foci, meaning you look under the microscope and you look for little cells of cancer. And he found that those fed the 20% protein had many cancer foci. But the 5%, the ones fed 5%, very few cancer foci. And he thought, well, that's interesting. So then he thought, now which is more important, toxins or protein? So he did another study. The 20% rats got off easy, no aflatoxin. The 5% rats got whopping doses of aflatoxin. And what happened? Nothing changed. Lots of cancer foci here, very few, despite all the aflatoxin. 
So many more foci here. Then he made the, the study even more complicated. For three weeks, the rats had a 5% protein diet. Then he switched them to 20% protein. What happened? The cancer foci grew. Then after three weeks at 20%, he flipped them back to 5% diet. And what happened? The cancer foci went away. When he flipped them again, the cancer foci came back. When he flipped them back to 5%, the cancer foci went away. What he said was foci growth could be reversed up or down by switching the amount of protein for all stages of cancer development. I hope you now notice that that means we have good memory for bad nutrition, okay? The body can remember early carcinogen insults and cancer can be reawakened by bad nutrition later. He also noticed that the dose response curve disappears. What do we mean by dose response curve? Those fed the high protein diet had a dose response curve. As he increased aflatoxin, he got more cancer, more aflatoxin, more cancer. That's what you expect for a dose response curve. But for the rats in the low protein diet, he could give them as much aflatoxin as he wanted and they didn't bump the cancer foci number. So remember, his question was, which one's more important, toxins or proteins? What does this show us? This shows us that low protein could override the effects of carcinogens. So protein, more important than carcinogens. Now you say, ah, that's tiny cancer foci. What about actual tumor development? So Dr. Campbell did that. He was looking for gross tumors, stuff you could actually see. And again, so the 20% rats, they all died, right? The 5% fed rats were fine. In fact, he mentioned that they were alive and active with sleek hair coats. Okay, I don't know what that means, but it sounded good. So then he repeated the study again. Those poor, the 5% uh, protein rats got lots of aflatoxin, didn't make any difference. These rats died, these rats were fine, despite the aflatoxin, okay? So still alive. He said, like flipping a light switch off and on, we could control cancer promotion merely by changing the levels of protein, regardless of initial exposure to carcinogen. What about other cancers? So not Dr. Campbell, a different group looked at, at the University of Chicago, they looked at breast cancer in rats. They used two different carcinogens, these here. They did a similar study, looking at 20% protein versus 5% protein, and what did they find? Just like Dr. Campbell, they found that these rats died and these rats were fine. They noticed that as they increased the amount of protein, they were using casein, that promoted breast cancer development. So Dr. Campbell, back to Dr. Campbell, he started looking at other cancers, including pancreatic cancer. And he repeated it again. The 5% got lots of aflatoxin, the 20% did not. Same results. These ones died, these ones didn't. Why am I personally very interested in this one about pancreatic cancer? Because of my dad. Here's my mom and dad. And my dad fought in World War II, but he did not smoke and he did not drink, but he ate the terrible American diet, so he had multiple strokes and multiple heart attacks, but he finally died of pancreatic cancer. And because he had pancreatic cancer, I'm at increased risk, and so anything I can do to reduce my risk makes me happy. So before you say, well, I'm just gonna lower protein in my diet, let's ask what protein was being used in all these studies? And the answer is milk protein. It was casein milk protein. So then Dr. Campbell said, well, is the problem protein or is the problem where you get the protein from? 
So he repeated the studies. This one looking at breast cancer, he used wheat. Guess what? Those rats were fine. It wasn't the level of protein, it was the type of protein. He tested a whole bunch of plant-based proteins. So in this one looking at liver cancer, he used soy. Guess what? Those rats were fine. So it's not the protein, it's the type of protein. So now he had strong evidence. Two different organs, liver and breast, four different carcinogens, two different species. He was looking at mice and rats. Casein, milk protein, promotes cancer growth. It affects the way the carcinogens interact with DNA and affects the way the cancer cells grow. In terms of tumor genesis, growth of tumor, he tested a whole variety of things. And what did he find? Nutrients from animal-based foods increase tumor development, while nutrients from plant-based foods decrease tumor development. Very striking. So guess what? I mean, I used to eat this all the time, right? Not anymore, right? Casein is the most relevant cancer promoter ever discovered. Now, you may be saying, ah, that's in rats. Why do I care, right? Who cares about rats? Well, why is this relevant? Rats and humans have the same protein need. Protein operates the same way in both. The level of protein that causes cancer is the same for both. And in both, the promotion stage is far more important than the initiation stage, meaning that it's not just you make a cancer cell. What do you do with it? Do you allow that cancer cell to grow? What he said is these and many other studies showed nutrition to be far more important in controlling cancer promotion than the dose of the initiating carcinogen. What about in human populations? Do we see the same results? What was the China study? That's the name of his book. It was a monumental survey looking at death rates of 12 different cancers in 2,400 Chinese counties, 880 million Chinese, 96% of the population. That's a huge study. And 87% of them were the same ethnic group, the Han people. So we couldn't say it was genetic variability that led to the results. The New York Times called this the Grand Prix of epidemiologic studies. Which cancers did they find were most responsive to diet? The three most responsive, breast, prostate, and colon, but also lymphoma, liver, lung, brain, and esophageal. What did they find? As the amount of animal foods increased, so did the rate of cancer. Even for small amounts of animal food, you have to understand the Chinese, on average, eat a whole lot less meat than we do in the States. Most cancers occurred in direct proportion to the quantity of animal foods consumed, meaning you eat more animal products, you get more cancer. More animal products, more cancer. Now you may be saying, denial, uh-uh, don't believe it, uh-uh. Guess what? Denial is a uniquely human trait, okay? <laughs> Dr. Varki here at UCSD has found this out. He was very interested in evolution, and he was trying to decide why did we humans beat out all the other super smart species? And why did we humans beat out all, all the other hominids, right? So you might think that your neighbor or your boss is a Neanderthal, but actually there are no Neanderthals, right? We beat out everything else. So in his book, he's talking about how that ability to deny some aspects of reality, what allowed us to evolve. And then in the middle of this book, I find this paragraph. And he's a molecular biologist here at UCSD. In my own lab, I study the mechanism by which the eating of red meat, beef, pork, and lamb results in the well-known increase of heart attacks, cancer, and early death. So this is a slide Dr. Varkey gave me. So red meat and milk products have glyconurminic acid that when we ingest it, it goes into our endothelium and our epithelium and causes cancer and heart disease. Now, before you jump to say, oh, great, I just won't eat these, wait just a minute. But going on within his book, I found this. 70% of the group in his lab had been moderate to heavy red meat eaters prior to joining the group. 
all understood both the epidemiologic and molecular information and fully agreed with the nature of the risk. Despite this, only a third had significantly reduced their meat intake and only one person had quit altogether. This is a photo he gave me of his lab. Look, they're all eating meat. This guy's got a meat mustache, right? <laughs> in fact, the meat consumption has actually gone up in his lab, 90%, even though they know, they know it's bad for them. This is what he says. Denial of mortality is also part of a much broader concept about other human ability to deny many other aspects of reality, especially when such realities are not to our liking. For example, we smoke cigarettes, eat unhealthy foods, don't watch our weight, and don't exercise, despite our full awareness that these habits are a prescription for an early death. So who else was in denial? So that's me with my husband. That's 2007, before we were plant-based. I look Awful. You can say it. It's okay. I look terrible before going plant-based. I'm fat. I'm pudgy. My skin looks yellow. It's terrible, right? My husband's fat. Oh, it's just terrible, right? <laughs> yeah, it's okay. You can say it, right? So we started dating in 2007, and many people laugh at this. I'm not quite sure why. But anyway, when we started dating, he says, you shouldn't be dating me. I'll be dead in a year. He was told, yeah, that if he didn't get a liver transplant, he would be dead in a year because of his liver condition. He was having monthly or weekly shaking chills and fevers to 104. He, it took quite a while before he ever went to see a doctor. And you might be going, well, that's stupid. Why didn't he go to a doctor earlier? So finally, a tick bite got him to go. Now, why didn't he go earlier? Because he grew up on a ranch in Wyoming, and cowboys don't go to see the doctor. Come on, right? So he waited a long time, but he finally went because he thought he had Lyme's disease. Turns out his liver function tests were 12 times higher than normal. They tested him up the yin-yang. No Lyme's disease, no viral hepatitis, normal iron, normal copper. For any docs in the audience, he has alpha-1 antitrypsin, which attacks the lungs and the liver. So a genetic liver disorder. That's what was attacking his liver. Because he grew up on a ranch, he ate meat three times a day. Grand Slam at Denny's, all the meat you could eat. He loved meat. So he thought this whole being plant-based was a bunch of hogwash. So I said, okay, let's do a study on you. We're going to do 12 days of a plant-based diet, okay? I'm going to test your cholesterol day one, and I'm going to test it day 12. His cholesterol went from 199 to 163 in 12 days. And more impressive, his liver function tests were, were three times normal, became normal for the first time since he knew he was sick. So he's now plant-based, and gone are the chills, gone are the fevers, and you know those commercials where the food smacks the person? I don't even have to yell at him, right? Because if he cheats, his own body says, no, I don't want that bad food anymore. So he's plant-based too. This was the most powerful information to help him see the impact on his own body. Now you might be saying, is red meat the only problem? That's great, I'll just get rid of red meat. Well, wait just a second. In this study, 32,000 adults, if they avoided red but ate white meat, more than 300% increased incidence of colon cancer. Now notice, eating beans, peas, and lentils at least twice a week halved that risk. So 50% lower risk than never eating those foods. So eat your beans, right? But even better, don't eat this. Can a vegan diet really help humans? Yes. Dr. Dean Ornish did a study with UCSF looking at men, 93 men, with early prostate cancer. The study group did a vegan diet, moderate exercise, yoga, and relaxation. After one year, the study group had lower PSA, only by 4%, but those in the control group rose by 6%. None of the men needed additional therapy, whereas six of men in the control group did. And interestingly, when they drew their blood and put it on prostate cancer cells in the lab, it inhibited the prostate cancer cells. Remarkable. 
So this is what he said. This is the first randomized trial showing progression of prostate cancer can be stopped or perhaps even reversed by changing diet and lifestyle alone. Are there any other studies showing that a vegan diet can help? Yes, some of the one population studied probably the longest. Uh, so the Seventh-day Adventist, there's a bunch in Loma Linda, just about two hours from here. And so in this 12-year study, uh, you have to understand that many Adventists are vegan, but there's also vegetarians and meat eaters, right? So they're encouraged to be plant-based, but they don't have to be plant-based. So within the study, they were looking at vegans to modest meat eaters. So vegan females, on average, were living nine years longer than average Californians, whereas men, nine and a half years longer than average Californians. And those who ate nuts and seeds lived the longest, slightly more than near vegans. So again, have we seen that a plant-based diet nutritionally in populations has been shown to be beneficial? Yes. Okay. So let's switch from cancer to heart disease. I showed you this as part of the quiz. What was going on in Norway during this time? This is looking at heart attacks. So what happened? The Norwegians, the Germans came in and took all of the livestock. So they didn't have their milk, their butter, their cheese, or their meat. And look what happened. They plummeted the amount of heart attacks. And what happened when the war finished? They got their livestock back. And what else did they get back? The heart attacks, right? To me, this is some of the strongest evidence that what we eat absolutely affects our health. So who wants an artery like this, right? You don't want all this plaque in here, and look how it's narrowing the vessel. Dr. Esselstyn is an endocrine surgeon at Cleveland Clinic. Uh, he wrote this book, Prever uh, Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease, so plant-based but also no oils for people with very severe heart disease. This is the program and the doctor with whom Bill Clinton worked to get his health back. Uh, I'll show you the cardiac angio of one of the anesthesiologists in Dr. Esselstyn's hospital. He was 49, exercised all the time, had a heart attack, was told, you could see the narrowing here, he was told he needed stents or heart, uh, open heart surgery. He refused. He knew about Dr. Esselstyn and his plan, so he went on the plan, and you can see within two years, he completely reversed the plaque and has a normal appearing artery. This has been shown time and time again with Dr. Esselstyn's patients, Dr. Ornish's patients. When you are plant-based and very low fat, you can absolutely reverse plaque along vessels. This is a quote from the uh, doctor heading the Framingham Heart Study. We tend to scoff at vegetarians, but they're doing much better than we are. Vegans have cholesterol levels so low they almost never get heart attacks. We've never seen anyone in the Framingham Study have a heart attack with a level below 150. So we're going to talk briefly about Gary. Gary had three heart attacks by the time he was 52. Worked out all the time. In fact, he had a heart attack and dropped dead while on the treadmill at the gym. Luckily, the fire station was literally next door. They came, back, came over and resuscitated him. He had tremendously high cholesterol. He was given the statins. He had tremendous muscle pain, so he couldn't take them anymore. He was then put on niacin. He had an anaphylactic reaction. That's a life-threatening allergic reaction, so he couldn't take the niacin. And his cardiologist said, there's nothing else I can do for you. One of these days, you're just going to drop dead. And Gary was very depressed and despondent. His uh, wife works with us. She's one of the sonographers. I gave her a copy of Forks Over Knives. They watched it together, and Gary said, hey, wait, there's something I can do about my life and about my health. So he gave up all meat and all dairy except a little bit of salmon. He has a little bit of salmon now and then. He gave up all carbohydrates, meaning the bad carbs, the pasta, the breads, the donuts, th that kind of thing. And he feels and looks great. His cholesterol is normal, and his lipoprotein profile is normal. So instead of the bad B kind, 
kind, he has now converted his lipoprotein to A. So it's great. And I like to joke that there's now only one carnivore in this picture. That's over here. <laughs> Dr. Kim Williams is now the president of the American College of Cardiology. He became plant-based in 2003. Why? Because he had a patient who had elevated cholesterol. And he told her, you got to go on statins. And she refused. She said, absolutely not. She became plant-based, and he saw in front of his eyes that she cured herself. Then he tested himself and said, oh, my goodness, I have elevated cholesterol. And he said, well, I know what to do now. He did what his patient did, and he became plant-based. So it's great, and he's been feeling great ever since. Now we're going to switch gears again and talk about erectile dysfunction. So what is the number one cause of erectile dysfunction in the United States? If you listen to too much TV, you're going to go with low testosterone. Oh, what are some other things? Psychological issues, obesity, prostate issues, improper nutrition, low testosterone, diabetes, trauma, and heart disease. What is the number one cause? Don't listen to the TV ads. It's improper nutrition. This is a busy slide, but bear with me, okay? Erectile dysfunction really is the canary in the coal mine. So in this study, what they did is they looked at men having a variety of problems. Angina, which means chest pain. MI, which means heart attack. Chest pain or heart attack. Stroke. Heart failure. TIA is a mini stroke. Arrhythmia. First cardiovascular event or death of any cause. And they asked, how many of these men had erectile dysfunction before they had their event? And here are the numbers, the percentages, whopping percentages. In fact, nine different studies with 3,800 men, 78 to 88%, the vast majority, had erectile dysfunction before the event or their sudden death. So if you know anyone with erectile dysfunction, their body is saying, please help me. My arteries are having difficulty. Please fix my endothelium. Because if they're having erectile dysfunction, they're at incredibly high risk of having some kind of event. So we want to stop it when they have the erectile dysfunction and not let them go on. In fact, there's even a free book on Amazon, Diet and Impotence, How Your Food Choices Are Either Causing or Preventing Erectile Dysfunction and Infertility. So if you want to have a good time, what do you need? Well, you have to have an intact endothelium. That's the lining of the artery, smooth muscle nerves, and you got to have nitric oxide. That's kind of the dynamite that gets everything going. So what do you want to eat to get the nitric oxide? So this is a photo from what the planet eats. Anyone think this is an American table? No. Look at all these lovely veggies and fruits. Yeah, so this is great for nitric oxide. But look at the photo they took of the typical American table. I defy you. Go ahead. Find a veggie and a fruit in there. There's a grape and a tomato. But other than that, it's pizza, meat, 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 processed foods, dairy, right? Is this going to give you the cascade you want for to cure erectile dysfunction? No, uh-uh. This is the cause of it. In fact, this doctor, this cardiologist, he prescribes a vegan diet to improve sex life. He says, outside the need for emergency surgery, I've never seen anything come close to the breadth and depth of benefits that a plant-based diet provides, says cardiologist Dr. Robert Osfeld, Yale and Harvard-trained, who runs the cardiac wellness program at Montefiore Medical Center. What foods are packed with the nitrates and the antioxidants that make them rush to convert to nitric oxide? Arugula, rhubarb, kale, Swiss chard, spinach, bok choy, and beets are at the top of the list. Finish your diet off with grapes, pomegranates, apples, and green tea, and you have a dynamite erotic potion that will supercharge your endothelium both in your groin and in your heart. 
Over 400 years ago, Thomas Sedenham said, a man is as old as his arteries, so you don't want old arteries, right? Eat plants to protect your brain. Eat plants to protect your heart, but also eat plants to power your sexual life, even if it seems hard at times. What may seem hard will keep you hard. <laughs> Now that's a great quote, right? You gotta love that. That's a great quote. We're gonna switch gears again and talk about osteoporosis. Is osteoporosis a big problem? Yes, 50% of women and 25% of men over 50 will have a fracture. Worldwide, almost 9 million fractures annually with a fracture occurring every three seconds. I showed you this as part of the quiz. These countries here have very high calcium intake but also very high hip fracture rate. What countries are we talking about? The United States, New Zealand, Sweden, and the United Kingdom. And you think, how is that possible? That's, we have whopping dairy intake here. But what are the other countries that you see down here? Hong Kong and Singapore. They're lactose intolerant, so very little dairy intake. And so despite what you hear in the news and the ads, hip fracture rates are actually highest in the countries with the highest dairy intake. So we're brainwashed to drink your milk, drink your milk for strong bones. That could, that's the furthest thing from the truth. So when you see all these ads, got milk, got milk, you don't want to read the ad. What she really is trying to say is, yes, almond milk or oatmeal milk or hemp milk, not cow's milk. And you may be saying, why? Doesn't milk have calcium? Yes, it does. But what happens? The standard American diet causes much of the consumed calcium to be lost in the urine. Excess salt, caffeine, sugar, and animal products leach calcium out of the bones and promote urinary calcium loss. So you ingest it, and then you lose it, and you lose even more. In contrast, vegetables, beans, fruits, nuts, and seeds are rich sources of calcium and other important minerals and do not promote the urinary excretion of calcium. Which foods are high in calcium? Romaine lettuce, bok choy, sesame seeds, broccoli, kale, garbanzo beans, the list goes on and on. Your body will absorb 50% of the calcium in veggies, but only a third of the calcium in milk, and then because of the cascade of events, you actually lose the calcium from your bones. So if you want to treat osteoporosis, you want to eat plant-based foods. How about diabetes? Dr. Barnard has studied this extensively. He's found time and again that a low-fat, plant-based diet leads to significant weight loss and dramatic improvement in blood sugar, plasma lipids, and blood pressure. He says, all of this occurs in the absence of any limits on carbohydrates, calories, or portion sizes. Let me say that again. This is not Weight Watchers, where people have to weigh their stuff and they eat tiny little meals. All of this benefit occurs in the absence of any limit on carbohydrates, calories, or portion sizes. If it, the food is good for you, you can eat as much of it as you want and still get these benefits. He says, in our studies and many others, people with diabetes, weight problems, lipid disorders, and other conditions discover the power of throwing out meat, cheese, and other animal products. As they replace them with healthy beans, grains, vegetables, and fruits, weight melts away, blood sugars fall, and the need for medications drop. For most people, hypertension, diabetes, high cholesterol goes away within days. What about autoimmune disorders? There's a whole host of autoimmune disorders. This includes multiple sclerosis, Crohn's disease, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus. What do they all have in common? They're all autoimmune disorders. And guess what? They all respond beautifully to a plant-based diet. 
So this is a woman I met. This is before I met her. She has sarcoid, which is one of the autoimmune disorders. She had so much pain, at 8 out of 10 pain daily, never left her house, was on all kinds of pain medications. Then she became plant-based. And look at her on the plant-based diet. She's glowing. She's thinner. She's active. She's living life to her fullest. She became plant-based, got off all of her medications, including her inhalers, and is pain-free. What about our eyes? <laughs> Macular degeneration, right? Is this a serious problem? Yes, it's the leading cause of blindness for folks over 65. The damage is caused by excess free radicals. So if you think about a fireplace, the little sparks coming out of the fireplace, that's kind of like a free radical. If it lets it go out, it could start a fire. So we don't want those little sparks going out. So the damage to the macula is from the free radicals. What they found in this study was 88% less macular degeneration in people eating greens five times a week. When the folks said, I don't want to eat the greens, I'm going to do the supplements instead, vitamin C, vitamin E, vitamin A, they found it was of no use. So you've got to eat the veggies. So if you want, you want carotenoids, so higher carotenoids, lower rate of macular degeneration, so you want to eat green leafy veggies, carrots, and citrus. What about cataracts? I thought, you just get older, you get cataracts. Nope. So instead of the blurry vision, what they found is that, is this a big problem? Yes, 20 million Americans over 40 have cataracts. Damage caused by what? Excess free radicals. This is a common theme. Free radicals are bad throughout our body. They cause inflammation and they cause disease. What they found is that lutein is the main component in our lens of the eye. It's also the antioxidant in spinach and the dark leafy green veggies. So what happens when you eat a lot of dark green leafy veggies? What they found is the folks in this study, the Wisconsin study, the highest lutein consumption, half the rate of cataracts. And those with the highest spinach consumption, 40% fewer cataracts. Yay! So eat our spinach. What about dementia? We're going to talk about this more in the last segment of the talk, but just briefly. Alzheimer's 1 in 5 over 70 will have cognitive impairment. Half of folks with cognitive impairment will develop dementia in five years. 20%, about 20% of Alzheimer's cases are attributed to elevated homocysteine. Homocysteine is a byproduct of methionine. Where do you get the methionine? From animal products. So the brain uses B12, B6, and folate to get rid of the homocysteine. But 96% of Americans don't eat enough greens and beans to have enough folate, okay? So which side of the brain do you want? If you're eating this, you're heading towards this. If you want to keep this, you want to eat these, the beans and the greens. In fact, one study put folks on a plant-based diet for just one week, just one week. And in one week alone, they saw homocysteine drop by 20%. Boom, one week, 20% drop. That's remarkable. Just think if you were plant-based all the time. Let's switch to the second part of our talk, which is talking about nutrients. Let's be nutrient wealthy. So there's the good and the bad. If you want to be plant-based, you have to have B12. You must take a B12 supplement. Absolutely key to take a B12 supplement. Also important to check your vitamin D levels. You want calcium, but you want it naturally through your food. Folate, not folic acid. Resveratrol, and there's a lot of information also coming out on probiotics. In terms of the bad, you do not want folic acid. So yes, you want folate, but not folic acid. If you're on a multivitamin, check. Most multivitamins have folic acid rather than folate. You can find ones with folate instead. You do not want vitamin A, beta carotene, vitamin E, selenium, iron, copper, or salt. So what they found is supplements are not just neutral. And many times when you take supplements, these kinds of supplements, they actually can increase your risk of death. So what are the good nutrients? 
So free radicals, again, we've talked a little bit about free radicals. What Dr. Furman has found is that animal-based foods lack antioxidant shields and tend to activate free radical production and cell damage, while plant-based foods with their abundant antioxidants tend to prevent such damage. So what should we be eating? He calls them G-bombs, and we need to eat them every day. Greens, berries, onions, mushrooms, beans, and seeds. And within seeds, he includes nuts. So G-bombs, okay? When he looked at 206 epidemiologic studies, the consumption of raw greens was the most consistent and powerful association with reduction of cancers of all types, including stomach, pancreas, colon, and breast. You really want to become friends with the cruciferous vegetables. So uh, kale, broccoli, uh, cabbage, cauliflower, watercress, bok choy. These guys rock. Why? When you increase your regular veggie consumption 20%, you decrease your cancer risk 20%. But when you increase your cruciferous vegetable intake 20%, you decrease your cancer risk 40%. So it's twice the bang for the buck. What about mushrooms? These guys, think of them as the Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator for cancer cells. These guys rock, right? Why? They enhance natural killer T-cell function, getting rid of cancer. They prevent DNA damage. They slow tumor growth. They cause programmed cancer cell death. They prevent angiogenesis, meaning cancer needs to have a blood supply. So it chokes off the blood supply to the cancer. This has been shown for breast, prostate, colon, and other cancers. It helps dendritic cells. Think of them as spindly things that catch cancer cells and microbes. And it helps prevent the decline in the number of dendritic cells that we see with aging. This next one I particularly like. It helps stop the growth of fat cells. Yay, so that one gets a smiley face, right? <laughs> what about onions and garlic? It reduces the risk of all common cancers, including colon, ovarian, prostate, esophageal, and stomach cancer. The stuff that makes you cry is the stuff you want. It inhibits angiogenesis again. It doesn't allow the cancer to get a blood supply. It detoxifies carcinogens and can even be an anti-inflammatory for arthritis. Pomegranates. I've just got to eat more of these because these guys rock. They are anti-everything, antioxidant, anti-carcinogen, anti-inflammatory. They help prevent cancer, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, erectile dysfunction. Who needs a little blue pill? Just eat a pomegranate, right? It's great. It helps prevent bacterial infections, antibiotic resistance, and UV skin damage. It lowers blood pressure, prevents cancer, especially breast, prostate, colon, and leukemia. It prevents platelet clumping, so blood clots and atherosclerosis, reduces kidney infections. One study showed heart patients with severe blockages in their arteries. They took one ounce a day for one year of the pomegranates. They had 20% less blood pressure and 30% less plaque after one year. Berries, you want to eat a lot. They act just like the cruciferous vegetables. They help transform the damaged DNA back to near normal and reduce cancer at many sites. What kind of berries? Any kind of berries you want. Black, blue, raspberry, acai, goji, elderberries, strawberries. They're great. Very high in antioxidants. Nuts and seeds. I hear some people saying, I can't eat nuts and seeds. It's too high in fat. Okay, the fat problem is a problem only if the fat is coming from animals, not if it's coming from nuts. Study after study has shown for all populations, genders, and ages, as nut consumption increases, death from all causes decreases. What they found is that the overall lifespan increases. So eat your nuts. This is not achieved with the oils. You need to eat the actual nuts. So the last part of our talk is talking about being wise. So exercise is better than Zoloft at treating depression. This was in the New York Times in 2000. But what about treating dementia? So 
what is, this is part of the quiz. What is even more disturbing, what virtually no one recognizes, is that inactivity is killing our brains too, physically shriveling them. So this is my mom. So my mom uh, got a degree in English and library sciences. Uh, she actually had ADD or ADHD before we knew what that was, right? She was uh, a librarian, an English teacher. She ran a pharmacy. She kind of worked as a circulating nurse for a while. Well, she married my dad, and they moved to Palm Springs. You see, brings wealth of cultures to life in Palm Springs. My dad was an attorney, and so mom was bored, and she said, I think I'd like to go to law school. And my dad said, oh, don't bother. You could never pass the bar. <laughs> Yeah, well, you don't give a challenge like that to my mom, right? So here she is, you know, graduating from law school, and there I am, and so is that my dad? No, that's the dean of the law school. <laughs> and so she was a practicing attorney for many years. She did crossword puzzles every day. She could quote sonnets and do poetry. She's incredibly smart. So here she is with my daughter's 11 months. Look at the bright look in her face, and then look at her seven years later. I hope you can see the glazed look on her face. The light is gone from her eyes, and she has Alzheimer's. Now, she was born, uh, she did have Alzheimer's, she's since passed, but uh, she was born in South America. Her parents were missionaries. So she played hymns at church from five years old on. So it was very interesting. She could play full hymns with full chords, but she couldn't remember our names, her name, couldn't brush her teeth, couldn't brush her hair, or do the activities of daily living, right? This is the last picture of her. Uh, she died after battling Alzheimer's for 13 years. For me personally, this is the number one reason why I am plant-based and why I try to exercise every day, because I will do absolutely anything to avoid this and do the, have that impact on my daughter. Luckily, found out about this book, Spark, the revolutionary new science of exercise and the brain. Physical activity sparks biological changes that encourage brain cells to bind to one another. I don't know about you, I want my brain cells to bind to one another. They want them to hold hands and hang on, right? Moving our muscles produces proteins that travel through the bloodstream and into the brain, where they play pivotal roles in the mechanisms of our highest thought processes. Brain scans of exercising rodents. Not only did the re running rodents show an increase in BDNF, that's growth factor over controls, but the farther each mouse ran, the higher the levels were. The active mice had twice as many new stem cells in the hippocampus. Now, you may be saying, what the heck's a hippocampus? It sounds like hippopotamus. Well, let's talk about that. Here's a healthy brain. Here's an Alzheimer's brain. And this part here is what's associated with memory. This is where the hippocampus is. And look at that same area in the person with Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's causes decrease in brain volume, but particularly in the area for memory, right? So we really, really want brain cells everywhere, but particularly in the areas for memory. Does exercise help? Absolutely. It strengthens the connections between brain cells. It creates more synapses to expand connections. It encourages new stem cells to divide and become functional neurons in the hippocampus. That's the area for memory. It elevates the supply of neurotrophic factors for neuroplasticity and neurogenesis, meaning you get new brain cells and you put miracle grow on them. So you make them grow and stick and stay. Has this been shown in human populations? Absolutely. In this study of 1,500 people in Finland, following people for 21 years, ages 65 to 79, those who exercised at least twice a week had 50% less likely to develop dementia. This was even more pronounced for the folks that have the gene that predisposes them to Alzheimer's, the ApoE4. When people come to recognize how their lifestyle can improve their lifespan, living better, not simply longer, they will at the very least be more inclined to stay active, and I added, and eat good foods. 
So what kind of exercise do you want to do? So the best is if you can do aerobic exercise and have skill acquisition. So basically dancing, where you have to do more complex movements. So dancing, yoga, rock climbing, martial arts, this kind of dancing, all of that is great. So here's one of our former residents. He's studying for his boards while he's golfing, multitasking, right? <laughs> basically any kind of exercise can help. Even walking five minutes a day can help. So get out there and exercise. The American Heart Association calls these the simple seven. We're supposed to meet all seven. No smoking, blood sugar under 100, blood pressure less than 120 over 80, being active 30 minutes five times a week, cholesterol less than 200, weight BMI less than 25, eating better, so food low in the bad fats, cholesterol, sodium, and sugar, and food high in fiber, veggies, fruit, and lean protein. What do you think? How many Americans meet all seven? Any guesses? Fewer than one in 2,000 Americans meet all seven. It's terrible, isn't it? So we got to get out there, we got to eat better, and we got to exercise. We got some people, you may be saying, oh, I can't be plant-based, you know, right? I'm an athlete, okay? Well, look at this couple. They ran a marathon every single day for a year. In fact, 366, because they wanted to be in the Guinness Book of World Records. Uh, yeah, and not only were they plant-based, they were raw plant-based, and they ran a marathon every day. ESPN wrote this article, football players go vegan, never felt better. Latui failed a physical. He became vegan. He says he's in the best shape of his life. Impressed with the results, his whole family is now going vegan. Pro bowler Foster believes he's creating a healthier, stronger body that will make him a better player, despite all the warnings and discouragement he hears. For him, the bottom line is that he doesn't feel good when he eats meat. He is philosophical about the reason people are so resistant to his new diet. We're emotionally attached to food, bad food. Think about every big event in America. It's attached to food, Christmas, Thanksgiving, birthdays, holidays. It's with food. That's why people feel so strongly about it. They're emotionally attached to it. This was on the cover of the sports page in the Union Tribune just about two weeks ago. Vegging out at mealtimes helps Chargers Allen improve fitness. When asked what is the main thing that's helped you improve your game and improve your nutrition, he said, salad. <laughs> you may be saying, I'm too old. I can't start this stuff. Uh-uh. Here's Dr. Horacio Diagostino. He left UCSD to become chair of radiology at Shreveport. He found out about the China study in the book Spark. So in his 60s, he became plant-based and started doing races, triathlons, 5Ks, 10Ks. He comes in first and second in his age group every race. His son, a gourmet chef, became plant-based as well. And he comes in first in his age group for every single race, triathlon, bike race, running race, you name it. And he's now going to medical school, which is great. So yes, you can absolutely start at any age. This is the mom of one of my friends. She started walking for exercise at age 60, started running at 72. She is the current USA record holder for the fastest half marathon for 80-year-olds and above, right? So get out there and exercise, absolutely. So how do you want to start? Dr. Bernard, the diabetes expert, says for breakfast, some choices include oatmeal with cinnamon and raisins, half cantaloupe, whole grain cereal with soy milk. So pick a bunch of different milks. There's oatmeal milk, hemp milk, rice milk, almond milk, veggie sausage, tofu scramble. For lunch, lentil soup, split pea soup, or white bean chili with crusty bread and steamed veggies. Pizza without cheese, but with extra sauce and veggies. Dinner could be a green salad and bowl of minestrone, followed by angel hair pasta with artichoke hearts, seared oyster mushrooms, and chunky tomatoes. I don't know about you, that sure sounds good to me. I encourage you to do what I did to my husband. 
Don't believe me. Don't believe anyone else. Test yourself, right? Test yourself day, blood, day one and test yourself day 12 going on a strict plant-based diet and test the labs that are most important to you. So for instance, you might want to check your cholesterol. And I know that you're going to see a dramatic drop. If you have arthritis, check some of the inflammatory markers. This is the book that, uh, that we used. And this is what I used to convince my husband. This is 12 Days to Dynamic Health. What's great about this is it gives you shopping lists and recipes for the 12 days. So you know exactly what to buy and what to make. Not happy the first week? Don't despair. You have detoxing to do, right? It's just like withdrawing from caffeine and smoking. You might have temporary fatigue, weakness, headaches. That can occur. Gas? Yes, you're going to have some. There's just no way around it, right? It passes, right? Right. Your gut will get used to your new way of eating. You're still going to have gas, but it will get better. If you need more protein, try nuts and seeds. If you want more oil to feel full, try flax seeds and walnuts. I can't cook to save my life, so my husband and I eat out a lot. Thai and Vietnamese are lactose intolerant, so if you leave off the meat, it's basically plant-based. We also love fast food Mexican, so chipotle, rice, beans, guac, and veggies. Boom, we're out the door with a fairly healthy meal. Then I get this a lot. Well, come on, Meg, everything in moderation. Really? Everything in moderation? Okay, let's try some things. Let's see if you agree on this. How about arsenic? Is that okay in moderation? How about lead? Cocaine? Heroin? Mold? Really everything in moderation? I encourage you to think about meat and dairy kind of in this list. So we want to really reduce our exposures to those. Kaiser is already on board with this. They have a whole pamphlet. I have an example of one here, instructing patients to be plant-based because they've already seen the benefits of it. In the pamphlet, they tell the patients about what is a whole food plant-based diet. They tell them what the health benefits are. They encourage them to do a 30-day challenge. So going back to our quiz, what did we see? that Dr. Campbell was looking at rats with liver cancer, fed 20% protein versus 5% protein. And what happened to them? These rats died. These rats were fine. And before you say, well, I'm just going to reduce the amount of protein in my diet, remember, he was using milk protein. He did not find these effects with plant-based proteins. It was only the animal-based proteins. Here, the heart attack rate in Norway during World War II, for me, this is the, some of the strongest evidence that what we eat absolutely impacts our health. Because as soon as the war ended and they got their livestock back, they got their heart attacks back too. Want to have a good time? Eat plants to power your sexual life, even if it seems hard at times. What may seem hard will keep you hard. For osteoporosis, don't be fooled by the ads. Don't drink your cow's milk to make your bones strong. These countries with the highest dairy intake have the highest hip fracture rate. We want to be like these folks with not eating the dairy. G-bombs, we want to eat them every day. Greens, berries, onions, mushrooms, beans, and seeds. And with the seeds, we include nuts, so eat them every day. What is even more disturbing and what virtually no one recognizes is that inactivity is killing our brains too, physically shriveling them. So we got to get out there and move. And then which brain do you want? If you're eating this stuff, you're heading towards here. If you want this brain and want to keep this, again, you want your green leafy vegetables and your beans. Remember the study, just one week on a plant-based diet decreased homocysteine levels by 20%. In conclusion, in order for man to succeed in life, God provided him with two means, education and physical activity. Not separately, one for the soul and the other for the body, but for the two together. With these two means, man can attain perfection. And who said that? Plato. So we've known this for quite a while. 
What are the eating recommendations? Dr. Furman says we need at least six servings of fresh fruits a day, concentrating on berries and pomegranates, eight servings of veggies per day, so two servings at least from the cruciferous vegetables and at least one raw. We want a half a cup of beans and legumes a day, one ounce of raw nuts and seeds a day, large salad every day, omega-3s, and I added resveratrol and probiotics. What do you not want to eat? He says barbecued, processed, and commercial meats. I would say all meat of all kinds. That includes turkey, chicken, and eggs, just so we're clear. Fried foods, dairy of all kinds, soft drinks, sugar, and artificial sweeteners, white flour products. So overall, if you got to have the bad food, it should be less than 10% of your diet. So if you're a woman eating 1,500 calories a day, only 150 calories should come from bad food. And I hate to tell you, 150 calories of bad food is a really tiny <laughs> serving of bad food. So this is the article from Scientific American, The True Cost of Risky Behavior. And they came up with this term, a microlife. What is a microlife? That you can get a half an hour, 30 minutes of your life. You can get it back or you can lose it. So in the green, these are things that if you do them, you get extra time to your life. So the first one, exercise. You exercise 20 minutes, you get two microlifes. Yay, you get an hour back in your life. Fruits and veggies, you get a microlife. So just one <laughs> serving of fruits and veggies. Alcohol drink, you get a microlife. You may be thinking, yeah, I can do that. Awesome, I'll keep doing that. Boom. Subsequent alcohol drink, you lose 30 minutes of your life. <laughs> So be careful. One alcohol drink, okay. Second one, mm, not so good. Red meat, you lose a microlife. Smoking, absolutely, you lose a microlife. Sitting more than two hours, lose a microlife. Being overweight. In fact, in the article, they said just one quarter pound burger, you lose a microlife. So is that burger really worth it? Get the veggie burger instead. So in closing, Dr. Campbell says, why be plant-based? The possibility of death has been holding steady at 100% for quite some time. I have often met people who use this fact to justify their ambivalence toward health information, but I take a different view. I have never pursued health hoping for immortality. Good health is about being able to fully enjoy the time we do have. It is about being as functional as possible throughout our entire lives and avoiding crippling, painful, and lengthy battles with disease. So I wish you all a long and healthful life. Thank you very much for your time and attention. You've been wonderful. Great, so we have about half an hour for questions. In the blue shirt in the back. So I didn't hear the last part. What about fish? And then the last part you said? Yeah, pros and cons of fish. Pros and cons of fish. Okay. So, uh, so the problem with fish is that it's an animal product. And I didn't have time to go through the various cascades. But basically, all animal products uh, increase IGF. It's a growth factor. And so what they found is that uh, by increasing your fish consumption, you basically, it's like any other animal product, and you increase your risk of cancer. So uh, what I didn't realize, again, we've been kind of brainwashed, is you think, okay, fish, I need my omega-3, so I need fish. Do you know fish don't make omega-3s? They don't make a single omega-3. They just concentrate it. So skip the middleman and go to the primary source, algae and that kind of thing. So there's all kinds of vegan sources of omega-3s. You can even get them on Amazon. Bottle the stuff, doesn't taste bad. I squeeze it onto a spoon every morning and eat it. And so um, fish also, depending on what kind of fish you get, very high in pollutants, mercury and other things. So you are really uh, doing yourself a disservice 
eating the fish. Uh, so again, you know, like, I don't know if you remember Michael Greger in his talk showed that in the Mediterranean diet, there's been no health benefit to eating fish that hasn't been borne out. Whereas the plants, the veggies, eating the beans and the grains has been shown to be beneficial. In the hat? So the question was, please tell me that chocolate and coffee are okay. One or the other. One or the other. So, uh, so coffee has uh, very high in antioxidants, so then you just have to be careful what you put in your coffee. Oh, gray black. Uh, I'm, I'm a wuss. I need to have creamer and that kind of, okay. So I've been doing almond milk in my coffee. Uh, so um, many studies showing that it's high in antioxidants, so coffee is fine. The chocolate, you just have to be careful what's in the chocolate, and in particular milk chocolate, because that's got the milk back. So luckily, um, even you know Vons and stuff has got uh, vegan chocolate, if you will. So more and more places have the dark chocolate. If you go to places like Whole Foods, you'll have whole shelves that you have to sort through in terms of which dark chocolate do you want. But more and more, if you have a sweet tooth like I do, there are great vegan desserts. As you can see from my rump back here, there are tons of really good vegan desserts. I'm here to tell you that. Uh, so the good news is that, yes, you can still eat your chocolate and you can still have your coffee. Just be careful what else you mix in with them. Yes, yeah, so he said um, even modest, modest amounts of yogurt and cheese can be undesirable. Yes. So even at stores like Vons, if you look in the corners where they have the yogurt, there's coconut yogurt, almond milk yogurt, and soy yogurt. There's a lot of not cow's milk-based yogurt. And so then you get the um, probiotic feature of the yogurt without the, the problems from the animal products. In terms of cheese, uh, there's fake, great fake sort of like kale chip cheese, you know, that kind of thing, things that taste like Doritos. If you want a pizza cheese, I have yet to find a good fake pizza cheese. It just does not exist. So I'm sorry about that. Um, cheese for me was the hardest thing to give up. And it didn't make sense to me why until I found out that cheese goes to our dopamine receptors just like cocaine and drugs do. So when you eat a bite of cheese, your little brain cells are going, ah, you know. So that's why it was so hard to give up the cheese. So once I knew that, I go, okay, that's, that's why. So unfortunately, it's hard. Someone told me that um, Trader Joe's has a great fake mozzarella. I haven't tried it, so you might want to try that. But in general, it's hard to find a good fake cheese. But there are great fake sour creams, fake yogurt, fake milk, fake creamers, just about all that other stuff. Mayonnaise, there's great fake replacements for all of that. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.